You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, this is Robert Wright. One thing I like about the conversations I have here on The Wright Show is that they help me think and write. They've informed the books and many of the articles I've written over the past 15 years. Now, lately, most of my writing has been for my newsletter, the Non-Zero Newsletter. It covers the kinds of topics you see on the show. Politics, foreign policy, psychology, philosophy, spirituality, how to avoid the apocalypse, things like that. So if you enjoy The Right Show, chances are pretty good that you'll enjoy the newsletter. It's free, and all you have to do to get it is go to nonzero.org and sign up. So I suggest that you hit pause, go sign up, and then hit play. Thanks. Hi, Toby. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm doing excellently. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Right Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Toby Tachow, known mm-hmm. to most people as Toby. Um, and you're the director of a group called Justice is Global, which is Chicago-based. Uh, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while, and, and um, one reason is just that I think Justice is Global... Uh, has, it, it, you know, it's a group that's kind of on the left, but I think has a distinctive take on uh, the challenges facing the left and a somewhat distinctive uh, policy agenda. Um, I, 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 it's not exactly the same thing I generally hear from the left, so that's why I've been wanting to talk to you for some time. Um, a reason that I'm interested in talking to you right now is because we're in this kind of uh, moment because of the George Floyd killing, uh, the ensuing protests, where there's a lot of um, a lot of energy on the left. Uh, the left is very vocal. There's a lot of discussions of um, policies uh, that that might be good to implement. So I, I wanted to 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 get your take on that as well. Talk uh, talk to you about whether um, Justice is Global has a kind of a distinctive take on this in any ways, or thinks that there's just part of the conversation that, that's not as robust as you think it should be at this kind of uh, moment of political ferment. So, um, but why don't we start out by just, uh, with your introducing us to what what Justice is Global is and, and what you see it as being about. Yeah, so the mission of Justice is Global is when a just and sustainable uh, global economy and part of our, um, you know, one of our starting points, one of our premises is uh, that uh, the problems that we face here in the U.S. Uh, can't fully be addressed just within the borders of the U.S., that they're part of a global system and that we need to um, address these uh, fundamental problems within the global system, work together with partners uh, across borders um, in order to um, uh uh, win real solutions to the biggest challenges that we're we're facing. Um, so I think the COVID nineteen pandemic is a very clear illustration of this principle. We're not going to beat COVID nineteen within the U.S. unless we beat it globally, because this virus does not care about our borders. So this is a moment when we need much greater international cooperation. Uh, when we need to um, prioritize the the well being of the the, the poorest, most marginalized people both within the U.S. and around the world. 
Um, and we need to work together uh, as um, one global society in order to do that. Um, so uh, I think sort of uh, the necessity of our approach is in this way made clearer by the COVID-19 moment, uh, even even though this is also a moment where uh, far-right nationalists are doing their best to pit people against each other across borders and mm-hmm. uh, tear apart global society. So what's an example of something you think is not being done about COVID-19 that should be done, or an example of just a kind of, uh, uh, more specifically, an example of a kind of rhetoric that you think is not helpful or gets in the way of kind of doing the right thing? I think what we're seeing is uh, a set of urgent needs that are going unmet both within the U.S. and uh, around the world. Um, uh, I think we're doing a bit better on this now than we were, but we saw massive shortages in medical supplies, in PPE, in, in ventilators, um, and uh, I just a catastrophic failure of the so-called global free market to meet people's needs. Like we, we ended up with um, shortages we, uh, that led to um, hoarding and, and profiteering uh, different countries, governments uh, competing against each other and like actually stealing medical supplies from each other on route. Um, like literally stealing. Yeah. Uh, the, the U S government was uh, a huge perpetrator of this, of um, using its, power within global supply chains to commandeer shipments of medical supplies that were headed already to other countries and to get them to the U.S. instead. Um, We've even seen that within the U.S. We saw the federal government um, intercepting shipments of medical supplies that were Mm -hmm. heading to various states, like primarily blue states, the states that Trump doesn't like. Um, and hoarding them uh, with within the federal government when they were going to go to these states and go to local hospitals and things like that. Okay, but on the international front, I mean, we weren't actually commandeering them militarily, right? How are we? What kind of leverage were we using? Uh, let's see. So um, there, there are different cases of this. One was, uh, uh, I think it, it, it's like 3M is mm-hmm. a, a major uh, manufacturing distributor of these medical supplies. It is based in the U.S. So the U.S. Um, uh, used the fact that 3M is an American company to mm. redirect shipments from 3M factories, um, which are mostly not located in, within the U.S. They're in like China or wherever. And, you know, there are shipments that had already been sold to Europe, let's say. Uh, mm. And instead of heading to Europe, the, the U.S. government said, like, no, that's coming. That's coming here instead. So Trump probably invoked some kind of emergency power or something. Yeah, I forget the legal details, but yeah, Uh, something uh, like that. um, Okay. So yeah, you can see how that could uh, lead lead countries to have a grudge against us if we steal steal their medical supplies during a pandemic. Yeah. And Um, then, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. And then beyond that, uh, we have uh, this need to develop treatments and hopefully a vaccine the way to do that is for all, all like every researcher on the planet who knows about this stuff to work together and cooperate and collaborate as closely as possible and, and, and share all their research with each other as freely as possible in order for us to get to treatments and hopefully vaccine as soon, like as soon as we can. Uh, and then we also need global cooperation to ramp up uh, production and distribution of this vaccine um, again, as quickly as possible. 
this is something that requires all the governments of the world uh, to work together and, and make this happen, uh, to coordinate their efforts with each other, uh, to prevent uh, the patent system from getting in the way. This is this is like a huge threat mm-hmm. that um, there's a huge threat in particular that U.S. pharmaceutical companies uh, will uh, you know, discover the first vaccine and then use the patent system to, uh, uh, profiteer off of the vaccine and keep it out of the hands of, uh, the people who need it, who, uh, are, you know, the poorest people who need it the most, both within the U.S. and, and globally. Um, so, you know, there are, there are efforts like, uh, a project called the People's Vaccine, um, to, uh, make sure that, uh, any vaccine that we, uh, develop anywhere in the world is, is, uh, available as freely as possible to everyone on the planet. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, with the current administration, uh, the chances of the U.S. government following through on that seem very slim. Yeah, it, it seems to me like if you want to get the vaccine done as soon as possible, you want uh, uninhibited communication among scientists yeah. uh, in various countries. You don't want them to feel possessive. You want them to share information. And if you want that to happen, it seems to me you do need to establish an agreement among nations that as a matter of intellectual property, you know, you're not going to the country that gets the vaccine first is not going to exclude it from from other countries. I mean, obviously, that doesn't take care of all the problems. There's manufacturing capacity and so on. And Mm -hmm. I suppose, I mean, it's complicated because. You know, let's face it, some of the researchers that are most, most likely to find a vaccine quickly are commercially motivated. They are big pharmaceutical con- co- uh, companies in America. We, I guess we want to keep them motivated. And I guess if you compel them to give away, uh, the intellectual property for free, maybe that dulls the incentive. On the other hand, maybe there's a way to ensure them some degree, you know, some minimal degree of payback beyond their country, and and uh, I don't, I don't know. Is is do you do you agree? It's kind of a it's a slightly complicated question if you want to keep these private actors motivated. It is um, in a way, it is complicated. Uh, it's complicated politically. I think uh, you know um, a lot of people have been. Uh, worried about the impact of intellectual property rights and patents specifically on medical research for a long time. Uh, so a lot of work has been done into developing alternatives. So there are lots of alternatives to bring things more into the public sector. Uh, and that can include um, having governments uh, like reward uh, private research companies for the contributions they make right. um, to any breakthroughs. Although like realistically already um, most of the, uh, most vital uh, medical research is already funded through governments. Like in the U S this is, this is true. Like yeah. the, the, the there's, a, there's a big, big subsidy uh, for, yeah. 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 And then, you know, typically uh, you get a private company that then profits off of research that to some large degree was funded by uh, federal dollars. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so there's, there's uh, uh a number of different like alternative systems that have been developed that would uh, overcome um, uh, these problems. Uh, the, the primary uh, obstacle is not figuring out new mechanisms. It's, it's, it's getting the political will and overcoming the, the power mm-hmm. of, um, you know, big pharma and things like that. Yeah. I mean, you could imagine a world in which 
the World Health Organization guarantees some minimal compensation for the the company develops it, but they have to agree in return that, you know, they make the intellectual property available for free to everybody. Um, But that would not be the world we're in since uh, President Trump has cut off all U.S. funding, at least, to the WHO and has even – I I don't know what the status of this is. He said we were going to actually leave it. I don't know if we have actually left it, but um, in any event, um, so uh, anything – Anything else on that? I mean, I think I think you're 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 right that it, international cooperation is a logical way to approach uh, a, a global pandemic, and Trump is you know kind of just by disposition the opposite of inclined toward international cooperation, and, and has been openly possessive about. Getting the vaccine first, you know, it being an American vaccine and not mm-hmm. wanting China to get it first and so on. Um, yeah. are, are, are there any other, are any other things that, that you, uh, that maybe Justice is Global, uh, holds as far as like, uh, any, any views you hold as far as how we should be addressing the pandemic? Yeah. The, the other thing that I would add to, um, you know, uh, the need for international cooperation to overcome these problems in the production and distribution of medical supplies and uh, research into a vaccine and other treatments. Uh, beyond that, there is a need for long-term investment in, in health infrastructure. Um, a lot of the problems that we're seeing both in the U.S. and um, uh, around the world in, in terms of uh, the, the inability of existing health infrastructure to deal with this pandemic uh, it's not just about this pandemic. These are these are long term deficits in uh, like necessary spending on on public health. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the the steps that we need to take in order to uh, create the public health systems necessary to deal with this pandemic are also the steps we need to take in order to create like functional public health systems. Period. Um, uh, and this is like a huge need in the global South, um, like huge swaths of South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa. It's also a huge problem uh, in uh, marginalized poor communities within the U S and especially um, black communities in the U S. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, now how, how old is justice is global? How long have you been around? Uh, we were founded as a project of people's action just a year ago. I see. And People's Action is a larger network? Yeah, that's right. It is uh, a network of um, community organizations and uh, uh, progressive political organizations, uh, mostly at the state and local level across the country. Okay. Now, I gather, am I right in thinking that you yourself, at least, have for some time, I mean, like even before Trump was president, were concerned about kind of right-wing nationalism as a force and you to some extent view your 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 role which would now be the the role of uh, the organization i guess so the role of progressive internationalism as being to um address the the problems that right-wing or address some of the problems that right-wing nationalism purports to address uh is that fair to say so, 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 why don't you tell us? I mean, how how far back does your own diagnosis of the situation go? How long have you been thinking about this stuff, and and explain to us 
um, how you see uh, what you see the role of progressive internationalism as in a context of, you know, kind of resurgent right wing nationalism, not just in the United States, but, you know, Hungary um, and Brazil, various other places. Yeah. Uh, so this would go back to I think it was in maybe 2014, 2013, 2015, that we, uh, a set of us, uh, were, uh, starting to be concerned that the growing dysfunctions of, uh, the global neoliberal system, just the status quo global system, were, uh, leading to a rise in nationalist movements and nationalist political leaders and that this was bound to continue until we could create an alternative. Uh, so back then, uh, we were seeing this uh, starting to develop uh, mainly in Europe. There are also signs in Asia. Um, and we did anticipate that it would eventually come to the U.S. Um, and so when when Trump won the 2016 election, which I, I didn't actually uh, predict that, I, I like trusted the polls that said that Hillary Clinton was going to run away with it. Um, but when when he he did win that election, um, you know, we were able to understand that as part of this broader trend of of uh, increasingly powerful right wing nationalist movements uh, worldwide. Um, and our understanding of this is that uh, following the 2008-2009 financial crisis, um, the global system uh has fallen into greater and greater disarray. Um, there's never really been a full recovery. Uh, economic growth globally has not recovered. Um, productivity growth has been, um, which is a, a crucial part of, of, of the global economy, um, has been really dismal, uh, especially in the advanced economies uh, like the U.S. and like in Europe. Um, and that this was going to, well, what we what we have seen and what we were predicting is that this, creates uh, increasing competition between national economies in their governments uh, to grab basically a bigger and bigger slice of a shrinking pie. So it's economic growth. So the, the fact that productivity is not growing very fast, you're, you're saying, yeah. intensifies uh, kind of the energy of economic Nationalism by virtue yes. of, of uh, let me let me just uh, do go on a little bit of a tangent. There's a separate issue with. Um, Growth in productivity having failed recently to translate into growth in wages, right? I mean, historically, mm -hmm. uh, in, in some simple, pure economic model, like that would happen, right? Like, um, uh, that, that one of the things permitted by growing productivity, I mean, I mean, growing productivity means that there's more output per worker. And you can imagine a world in which, uh, the workers, and wages grow correspondingly, or at least grow. Uh, whereas in recent years, that has not been happening, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So um, uh, I think it's it's fairly well known now that uh, since uh, sometime in the mid seventies, uh, productivity growth. Uh, has continued, but, uh, wages, median wages have been largely stagnant, right? So, um, this is, um, uh, there's a famous, there's a now famous graph that, uh, everyone on the left is, is familiar with, I think, uh, that shows this divergence. Um, 
So that, that is true that uh, productivity growth uh, for the past uh, several decades has outstripped uh, growth in, in wages. Um, however, uh, there's, a, there's a wrinkle in that, which is that uh, productivity, the rate of productivity growth um, since the mid-70s has been much lower than it was in the so-called golden age of American capitalism uh, between you know, the post-World War II period to um, the, the, the 60s. Um, and, uh, so productivity growth, uh, has been bad for, for decades. It's been especially bad in the past decade, but it's been, um, uh, pretty lackluster, uh, for, for decades now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I think this is a thing that, um, uh, deserves a lot more attention on the left, um, the, the role of productivity growth in the overall system and, and the pressures that, 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 that creates, um, on like all sectors of society, um, because, uh, productivity growth has to get is, is, is you got to split that up between increases in, uh, in the profits of firms, uh, increases in public spending and increases in wages to workers. Like all of that has to come out of the growth in, in productivity. So when productivity growth is high as it was in the period, in the post-war period, um, you could get all three things. You could get uh, wages going up, you could get uh, public spending going up, and you could get firms continuing to be quite profitable. Like that, all those three things coexisted in the post-war period because of this high uh, and pu- rate of The public spending growth. part presumably comes via taxation, and and yeah. and and, uh, and there and there's more room for that to the extent that productivity is growing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And and you can do that with firms remaining quite profitable, which they were in the post-war period, like making huge profits even though wages were going up for workers and public spending was going up. Um, when productivity growth uh, uh, starts to um, uh, suffer, then you start to, that sort of forces trade-offs, that forces the system to make trade-offs, um, where now um, an increase in wages and uh, in public spending uh, will inevitably come at, inevitably seem to come at the cost of, um, of corporate profits. And, and so, that's a major part of the dynamic uh, in the past several decades under neoliberalism is that um, poor productivity growth has had, has forced these trade-offs. And of course, what we've seen is um, corporate power uh, um, has uh, 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 organized itself very effectively um, to uh, uh, hoard all, all the gains for themselves and, and cut off um, uh, workers and also um, uh, social spending. Okay. So, um, I mean, it's funny, the, the account, uh, the, the conventional account of what energizes economic nationalism is more like a microeconomic account. Yours was kind of a macroeconomic account, right? I mean, what they generally say is, um, uh, globalization and on the left, uh, you know, the word neoliberal is generally brought into play as kind of the, the ideology responsible for this. Uh, kind of the enemy ideology, but, uh, that has, um, in, encouraged or permitted, uh, American companies to send work to low wage countries. And that has kept, uh, wages in America stagnant and made jobs scarcer and it's these these workers in middle america who used to have good union jobs who don't who used to see their wages rise who don't now um 
uh, are those are the Trump supporters. And then the second big variable sometimes brought in is immigration, uh, low wage immigrants, maybe holding wages down, taking some of these jobs and so on. But that is the uh, that's kind of the standard narrative. Now, I assume you see that as just kind of complimentary. In other words, another way, uh, a way of telling part of the same story you're telling. Uh, or, or, or you see part of it. I, I, uh, I mean, there's two different dimensions of that story. Again, there's the, the foreign wage, uh, competition, and then there's the immigration. Those are two different things. Does, does either of those or both fit into your story? Yeah. Uh, I think the, the competition between, uh, workers across borders is absolutely part of our story. Uh, a major part of the dynamic. Uh, under neoliberal globalization has been this race to the bottom where uh, workers in all countries are forced to compete with each other over who will work for the lowest wages and the longest hours and the worst working conditions. Um, and uh, that has definitely been uh, a part of um, what has happened to the working class in the U S and uh, how workers have suffered in the U S um, in this period. Uh, there's another part of this story though um, w- where that, that, that is missing from the norm, normal account, which is really understanding this is, um, like more properly is a, is a global phenomenon. So, uh, we talk about, uh, it's, it's, it's common for people in the U S to talk about, uh, U S manufacturing jobs getting shipped overseas. So, mm-hmm. so China is, is a major, uh, source of complaint right now that we're, sh- we're shipping manufacturing jobs overseas to China. Uh, problem with that story is that manufacturing employment in China has been declining uh, a lot uh, in recent years. Um, China's lost a lot of manufacturing jobs in recent years. To other, to uh, some of them, to other Asian countries that are now lower wage than China, That's like Vietnam. Correct. That is that is part of it. Um, okay. Or even to uh, Africa, like Ethiopia, is like a lot of Chinese capital is moving to Ethiopia right now, for example. Hmm. Um, so that's part of it. Uh, but the other part of it is uh, a global dynamic where. Um, uh, Growth in uh, the productivity of the manufacturing sector globally has outstripped growth in demand for those products, right? So um, the manufacturing sector globally can produce a lot more now, but there's no demand for that in, in large part because workers aren't making any more money. And so they can't spend money to, to buy this, uh, the increasing range of products that can be um, uh, increasing quantity of products that can be produced by the manufacturing sector globally. Um, so what that inevitably leads to are, are layoffs. So that's why you have a drop in manufacturing employment, not just in the U.S., but also in China and internationally. Um, and so uh, that is, um, so it's not, so it's, it's not just that jobs are moving from one country to a lower paid country. It's that um, the, the manufacturing sector as a whole is suffering from, uh, this problem of increasing uh, overcapacity, that the capacity mm-hmm. of the manufacturing sector globally is greater than um, can be consumed right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, even though there's a lot of unmet human need in, in, in the world. So um, uh, there are a lot of, a lot of people in the world who, who um, you know, we would want to be able to consume more. In other words, we'd want them to be able to get out of severe poverty. Um, but, uh, you know, the system just can't meet the needs as it is constructed currently. So, um, let's talk about 
left-wing economic nationalism a little because I, I, I assume that to some extent you stand in contrast to left-wing economic nationalism or at least to some aspects of it. I mean, they're, they're, you know, the, the, uh, Trump's economic nationalism, which in extreme, maybe caricatured form would be kind of, you know, uh, the way you protect American, uh, manufacturing is just with tariffs. Just don't let any, uh, you know, don't, don't let, uh, goods into America that were produced with, with cheap labor. Of course, Trump isn't actually going this far, but I mean, in caricature, uh, you know, he, he is playing the tariff card. That, that's true. But, but in caricature, economic nationalism is you basically erect, uh, walls, um, to keep the products out that are being produced with low-wage foreign workers, so American consumers who have considerable spending power as a as a fraction of the overall world spending power, um, they buy American-made um, products. And although again, Trump hasn't opted for anything quite um, quite that extreme, it, it's it's it, that does capture kind of the nature of his pitch in a certain sense, and it does have some resonance on the left, right? I mean, this is Steve, Steve Bannon's grand plan, right? Is to, is to continue to take traditional Democratic voters away from the Democratic Party and move them into this kind of Trumpist coalition yep. by opting some, uh, for some uh, left-wing policies, including in Bannon's telling, actually taxing the rich, something that Trump doesn't seem to be able to bring himself to do. But there is a, there is a world in which, oh, I guess you might say in which Trumpist is, is less exclusively right-wing nationalism in that it has some more traditional progressive elements. Anyway, I, I'm kind of getting away from my main point. My main point is that there is such a thing as left-wing economic nationalism, right? It's not, but that's not exactly what you stand for. You're calling your thing progressive internationalism. And I'm wondering what the difference is. What are the main contrasts you would, uh, point to between your ideology and a kind of a leftist economic nationalism, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the fundamental starting point is that all of our biggest problems are uh, irreducibly global. So there's no way to get around the global dimension. Uh, and so that includes the struggles of the U S working class. The struggles of the U S working class are, um, how the struggles of the working class globally are showing up in, in the U S and there's no separating the problems faced by the U S working class from the problems faced by workers all around the world. Um, which, and if you, and if you get clear on that, then, um, the, the consequence is that, uh, the way to improve the wages and the status of workers in the U S is to improve the wages and status of workers all around the world. Um, and that's what's got to happen. We need to deal with inequality globally, uh, in, and, and that's, that's how we are going to overcome these growing dysfunctions in the existing neoliberal system and also create a better future for workers in the U.S. So there's um, left, so the, there's less low wage competition abroad for traditionally American jobs if workers abroad are making more money, right? Stands to reason. Yeah, uh, that is a big part of it. Um, it's also, uh, you know, I talked about this problem of global overcapacity in the manufacturing sector. Um, a big part of that has to do with uh, the fact that um, wages have been suppressed for workers all around the world. 
so if you could correct that, then you could um, start to create solutions to this problem of global overcapacity, which is uh, killing manufacturing jobs in the U.S., in China, and really everywhere right now. Um, can I can I interrupt you there because yeah. this is so overcapacity is like that's a traditional part of kind of leftist economic analysis, right? I mean, it's something that is warned mm-hmm. against. Marx warned against it and so on. Whereas a, 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 a more of a free market type economist, uh, would argue that no, overcapacity corrects itself. The market sends signals. What happens is you have too much of something. The price drops. Uh, so more people buy it. That's the end of the overcapacity. Um, you, I guess you argue that that mechanism really doesn't work so efficiently and i guess i guess my question would be what are the examples of that now the, the of the the uh, overcapacity and how that is feeding uh like the problem of global inequality the problem of low wages uh abroad and so on um so let's see i guess you know we could look at for example um uh one of Trump's favorite industries, which is steel. So there's massive overcapacity in the steel sector right now. And the story that uh, Trump tells about that is that, you know, this is, this is, um, all China's fault. And, you know, it is true that, uh, the Chinese steel industry has, uh, increased its output like tremendously, um, particularly in like the, the last decade. Um, but we've also seen like massive layoffs in the steel sector in China, right? So, um, uh, this is like hundreds of thousands of, of jobs lost in the steel sector in China just in the, I think past couple years or it's anyway, it's, it's, it's Mm -hmm. a big shift just recently. Um, so, uh, this is, uh, a problem that, um, you know, in, in a world run by reasonable people like we would come together across borders and say like, Oh, we've all got this problem of, uh, in the steel sector. Um, how do we, how can we like resolve this together? Like what actually is the, like, if we look at, uh, what our real needs are as a society. So for example, uh, we need to, um, uh, radically transform our, uh, economies in particular in the energy and transportation um, sectors in order to reduce our carbon emissions uh, and find solutions to the climate crisis. Um, that means building a lot of new things. Okay, so um, what 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 do we need the what role do we need the the steel industry to play in that globally? Like we could figure out like what are our real needs? Like maybe we actually do have uh, uses for all of the steel that we're making globally, and it's just not getting used right now because we're not investing in in uh, a clean energy transition in the way that we should, mm-hmm. right? But, like, we can figure that out um, uh, uh, as a global society. Um, we're just not doing – that's not what we're doing right now. Mm. Okay. Um, so, now, did I interrupt – did I get in the way of your finishing a thought when I asked that question about overcapacity? Is there something more you were going to say? Um. Uh, I forget what question you wrote on before. No, yeah, well, I got that. Well, well right let's, let's jump yeah. to your most radical practical idea. Or, well, maybe the, the question is whether it's practical and that's why it's radical. But the, um, uh, 
you're you're in favor of a global minimum wage, which yes. you know most people would say is not going to happen tomorrow. You would probably say it's not going to happen tomorrow, but a lot of people would say, "Are you crazy? That's never going to happen." There's never going. to I mean, we can't even get America to stay in the World Health Organization. Trump seems to be in the process of destroying the World Trade Organization, which is the current forum. Uh, for kind of, uh, you know, to the extent that there's a global economic policy body, that's one of several. I, now, I'm sure the, the, the ones that exist, I am, uh, you know, International Monetary Fund, uh, World Bank, WT, oh, don't meet with your approval, uh, altogether. But in any event, the point is that, uh, we can't even keep those, you know, it's not even clear we can keep those together. And they, in a certain sense, aren't trying to do anything nearly as um, kind of path-breaking as a global minimum wage. But anyway, that, that's your that's your plan, right? I mean, that's yeah. your... I don't know how long you think it might take, but... Uh, but uh, and I assume you think uh, progress might be incremental for a while, but that's the idea, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. And you're, you're unapologetic. I mean, you must be used to people, like, making fun of you, right? <laughs> um, I think, you know, no one has, uh, I haven't, I haven't heard any compelling objections to the idea itself. The, the, the pushback is always around, like, is this politically realistic? Right. Um, right. That's what I mean. Um, yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the idea of the global minimum wage would be that, uh, it wouldn't be that everyone is given say U S level minimum wages globally, but there would be a shared set of, of standards, uh, a, a, a formula in common for setting uh, minimum wages uh, all around the world based on um, local cost of living and, and things like that. I see. Um, and uh, there, there's like a couple of formulas that people have already uh, developed, like the, this the formula based on uh, a, pop, a standard formula is based on identifying a, a, a minimal basket of goods Mm -hmm. that everyone should have access to and using that to calculate uh, based on the uh, expenses in each region, like how much uh, the minimum wage should, should work out to be there. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, yeah. And, and the idea behind this is that uh, by, if we have a global minimum wage system that will uh, end and reverse the existing race to the bottom between workers all around the world by, by putting a shared floor under all workers so that we can lift workers up together. Um, and that will not only uh, improve um, the standard of living for workers everywhere, uh, and particularly in the poor countries in the global South, um, but it will also um, start to resolve uh these deep dysfunctions uh, in the global economy under the neoliberal status quo. Mm -hmm. Now there, there actually have been kind of nods in that direction uh, in, in actual policy. Uh, you know, uh, certainly when uh, NAFTA was uh, formulated and, and, and kind of became law during the Clinton administration, American Labor Union said, wait a second, I'm not sure we want to be exposed to this sudden competition, you know, suddenly increased competition from low-wage Mexican workers. Clinton administration said, well, we'll put in these labor accords. And it was nothing as dramatic as a minimum wage, but it was things like, um, well, uh, Mexico will 
guarantee that they'll make it easier for workers to organize or something. You know, it, it was things like that. And, and even those were not very robust when you looked at what the actual commitment was and what the actual mechanism was for enforcing any commitment that was made. Um, but, uh, then, then Trump, I, I thought Trump's version of NAFTA had one interesting feature. I have no idea whether it'll have any impact, uh, but it was a new type of thing because it actually addressed wages per se. And I'm sure you're, you're probably familiar with it, right? It was this thing that said that if a car made in Mexico, Canada, or the United States is going to qualify for free trade within North America, some certain percentage of the parts or something are going to have to be made in factories with an average wage of $16 an hour, something like that. I'm sure I got something wrong. But the point is, there was an explicit quantitative reference to wages, which I don't, of a kind that I don't think existed before. Mm-hmm, now, mm-hmm. I, I have, so I have a couple of questions about this. One is, do you imagine as a practical matter, and I should say, American labor, I mean, various, uh, there have been critics of this from the left who say, well, yeah, but the, the actual amount of money wasn't, it's not going to make much of a difference. Also, it's not clear it's going to be enforced. But leaving all that aside, just looking at that as a type of thing, do you imagine that that's the kind of policy that through increments is going to get the world to a point where they actually take seriously the idea of an actual global minimum wage kind of incremental steps? Yeah, I mean, I could see that. Um, the, you know, the, 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 uh, standards, the, the provisions for labor standards in sort of NAFTA 2.0, um, I think we can give some credit to, to the, um, to those. I think, um, uh, there is a serious attempt there to improve labor rights within Mexico. Um, and, uh, uh, the, the stuff around the wage standards, um, I have some critiques there about how it was set. Like it was set quite high compared to the prevailing wages, uh, in the industry in Mexico, which I, so I haven't, I haven't looked back and read about this more recently, but at the time, uh, my sense was that, uh, you know, firms in Mexico would, uh, not be, it would not make sense for them to bump up wages that much all at once. And so what might happen is they would just, you know, end up eating the penalties or something like that. Or, or just moving the production to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and yeah. in your, and in your, where the wages are already that high. And in your ideal world, that wouldn't be the, I, I mean, you would, you would have a little of both, right? You would have an actual improvement of working conditions in the lower wage country. And some degree of of buffering, I mean, you tell me if this is right, of the American workers from uh, competition. Uh, so, in other words, it, yeah. it, it, it would benefit it would benefit both sides. Yeah, and I want to be clear: like the way the way we want to uh, protect U.S. workers from uh, competition is by raising the conditions, uh, raising the status of workers globally. Right. Like, like that is the solution to competition for us is not protectionism it's uh greater solidarity and cooperation between workers uh across borders so um, workers of the world unite yes that's right yeah yeah not an original phrase but yeah. <laughs> it's got some history yeah yeah 
So now, now the standard criticism from from the right is, you know, well, I, I guess they'd say, um, the first thing they'd say is, well, if you raise raise wages abroad, that'll just move production here, defeats the purpose. You're saying no, you don't you don't raise it so much that they'll just move all the production here. You have it uh, a little of both. You improve wages a little abroad. You help workers here a little. And I guess they have a response to that, too, which is they would say that you're still introducing inefficiencies to the system or something. Uh, but I don't know. You tell me, do you, do you ever actually have these? I mean, is there even a conversation going on with between you and people on the right? Or is it just kind of like? Uh, no, I, I like have not had any debates really with sort of right wing economists or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh yeah, so there's there's not really a, a conversation there. Um, you know, I think that another another piece um, uh, of the puzzle here that goes beyond just the idea of a global minimum wage system is uh, the other thing that needs to change is how investment works uh, internationally. Um, uh, and this is this is another thing that is is um, uh, I'm, I'm, a major force behind this uh, global race to the bottom is uh, this um, like how foreign investment is driven by um, the demands of uh, like the global uh, financial sector that is always seeking sort of the largest shortest term profits. Um, And uh and what we need in instead of that is uh, uh, longer term productive investment. So, so the the model the, the model of uh, investment also uh, has to change, um, uh, and that that's that's another part of the solution to this global race to the bottom, right? So, um, we need we we need that 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 part of the system also has to change. So that we can have significant wage increases in Mexico or Bangladesh or, or wherever without uh, capital immediately deciding, oh, that's it. We're out. Um, mm-hmm. We're cutting ties. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm curious, do you, I mean, as long as we're t- kind of broached the subject of how you get from here to there, are you okay with using the, uh, some of the existing international institutions, uh, assuming it can be done to implement uh, these policies, like policies governing wages and labor conditions, because I know the, the, the WTO is, is considered kind of a villain mm-hmm. on the left, uh, because it's, it's not a very left wing body. It really doesn't, it doesn't get into, uh, any, I mean, not even to the extent that NAFTA does, does it get into environmental and labor accords. On the other hand, it's an existing body. Uh, that in principle, if it did start implementing those kinds of, uh, regulations would have a certain amount of power because everybody wants to be part of the WTO. Countries want to be part of the WTO. Yeah. And if you made, uh, as a precondition for belonging to the WTO, I mean, let's take environment, you know, a commitment to greenhouse, uh, gas emission targets, whatever, uh, or, or, uh, even or commitment to um, let workers organize or getting even more ambitious and doing things about wages per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it seems to me like it's a powerful body 
kind of waiting to be used, leaving aside the political challenge of steering it to the left, it, it, it is uh, it's a tool, right? Do you do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I think uh, what makes sense as a way forward is to seek to take over these uh, transnational bodies that currently take over. Maybe a phrase you want to avoid, but that's just you know you don't have you don't have to uh, you don't have to take my advice on optimal phraseology. Uh, Yeah, yeah, Uh, I I think we can ameliorate. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. like, uh, I'll go with transform, transform these transnational bodies yeah. uh, and turn them into vehicles for things like labor standards, as well as, yes, environmental standards, um, climate standards. Um, and I think the, 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 great, the great potential that they have for progress is that these are bodies that have like regulatory teeth, right? Like in contrast to the, the ILO, the International Labor Organization, um, which has done some really progressive stuff that's really valuable. Um, uh, it, it is a, it is a huge struggle though to use the ILO in a way that can, um, actually be enforceable. Like how do you make these standards enforceable? How do you give these standards like real teeth, mm-hmm. um, internationally? Uh, that's not as much of a problem with things like the WTO and the IMF, like um, they can create standards and then, and then um, make them real in the world. Um, And uh, I think this is counterintuitive to a lot of people on the left, because we've spent decades thinking of these institutions as the villains and rightfully so, because they've done villainous things all around the world. Um, But uh, uh, you know, we should also understand uh the progressive potential that might exist um, through these institutions uh, as well. Um, I, mean, I mean, the WTO, you know, one difference between it and its kind of predecessor, the the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, is it actually has an adjudicatory body mm-hmm. that rules on trade disputes between countries. That was a new thing. Now, as it happens, Trump has paralyzed that yeah. body by refusing to reappoint judges and, and and it's worth noting. I mean, I mean, Trump is just flat out opposed to global governance. He's just he just doesn't like the idea of international government governance. And you really you see this in everything from economic policy to environmental policy, really to even arms accords. He just kind of seems to uh, take aim at those for for no obvious reason um, sometimes. And you know, I've made a, a, in the past a different kind of argument from the one you're making for moving uh, bodies of global governance to the left, like like making the WTO uh, less of an exclusively kind of a conservative, you know, uh, forum and, and, and using it to implement uh, labor and environmental policies, which is just kind of like, if you are a globalist, if you are a capitalist who wants to preserve uh, the system of uh, global trade... You should recognize that it's under assault yes. uh, from people who truly want to destroy them. I mean, people yeah. like Trump who, who, who are against the kind of institutionalized cooperation, uh, international cooperation, that's probably critical for things ranging from the smooth functioning of the economy to addressing environmental problems to arms control and everything else. And so it may be that even if you are not yourself very far to the left, 
it may be a, it still might be a political concession that it's worth making ju- yes. just just for the sake of preserving the globalization project right yeah, exactly yeah yeah and you know this is an argument that that uh we've made and um you know we have had some productive conversations um around this with uh you know um sort of uh neoliberals who are really committed to uh, maintaining the global economy and yeah, they're not on the left, but they understand that it's under assault, uh, from, uh, these economic nationalists. And, um, we can make a pretty convincing case that the, the only alternative to the future where Trump and Bannon are rewriting the rules, rules of the global economy is to create, uh, more progressive global standards. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, I think that for, for, um, uh, a decent number of these folks that, that is a compelling case. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I said, uh, I'd like to talk about the recent kind of political ferment in, in, in the wake of the George Floyd, um, killing. And I'm wondering if you have, uh, well, if you have a take on that, uh, and, or if you have a kind of a, a distinctive take on that. In other words, things that you'd like to add to the conversation, uh, as, as it's taking place. Yeah. Um, uh, I guess, you know, just a, a th- this is not a new take, but this is one of the most hopeful things that has happened since this, um, uh, pandemic started. Um, uh, yeah, I was, I was, I, you, I you, mean the, you mean the protest? Yeah. 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 Um, uh, we have, um, we have a, a new social force making transformational demands and actually making some progress and changing the conversation. And, uh, yeah, we're seeing like some real leadership on the left, uh, in, in the streets in a way that, um, was just not visible before, before this started. And, uh, like I participated in some of the protests here in Chicago and it is a, uh, young, uh, multiracial, um, constituency, black led, um, and figuring out like just deeper multiracial solidarity than I think we've seen in the movement before this moment. Um, and, uh, you know, if we think of the task of, um, the next, you know, the next few years or even decades as the creation of a, a proper multiracial democracy, like this, th- this is the start of that future, I think is, is, is taking shape on the streets right now. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's a huge inspiration, um, in terms of how it, uh, intersects with, uh, the work of justice is global specifically. Uh, I think one of the biggest, um, points there is around militarism. Um, and there's also, I think, uh, at some point we're going to have to think about how this ties in with the right wing nationalist agenda, uh, against China, um, which they're, they're going to try and move it in, or they already are trying to move it, uh, move the conversation back onto China. Um, so, I mean, there's a few uh, things. I mean, this in the wake of the pandemic and Trump blaming China rather than himself and, and, and so on, right? That's, of course, I mean, of course, Trump, uh, had blamed China to some extent for, for, you know, wages in America and so on and various other things, but, but the pandemic, Gave that added emphasis, and, and is that the main thing you're you're talking about? 
Uh, so uh, that's part of it, but it also builds on that. So just as Trump and the right have, um, uh, and like the the NR, NRSC, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, like they've all said that blaming China is our election strategy for 2020. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that we're also seeing that take shape around the protests, um, including in some just bizarre ways. Um, so you know, Peter Navarro, um, one of the top anti-China hawks in the Trump administration, was on Fox News blaming China for the protests. Mm. There are some bizarre conspiracy theories circulating uh, on the right about how um, the Chinese Communist Party is funding and organizing Antifa, and Antifa is why it's turned into, you know, riots and looting. Uh, so really, the Chinese Communist Party is responsible for all the chaos in the U.S. right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve Bannon... Uh, had this bizarre interview where he tried to blame China for George Floyd's murder. Did he go that far? I mean, he's yes. been he's been really out there on the anti-China front. Of course, yeah. he has a patron. You know, his patron Miles Guo. You know this story, oh, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. there's there's a guy who was indicted by the Chinese government. I guess fled to America, hopes to not be extradited. Is a billionaire and is. Apparently funding a certain uh, a certain yes. amount of uh, Steve yeah. Bannon's activities, yeah. uh, and I think that has helped steer Bannon in a more single mindedly anti China. I assume because I, I don't know if you ever uh, listened to his, like his podcast, Bannon's podcast, but it is it is all out. Uh, it yeah. is like crazy over the top anti China, yeah. uh, like every day. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. So. Um, they're going to these r- really extraordinary and and grotesque lengths to try to bring China back into this conversation about racist police brutality and anti-black racism in the U.S. Um, and uh, it seems clear to me that this is part of this like um, heroic effort to. Re- to turn the conversation back to China where they think they have, they think they have an advantage like electorally that the anti-China message is, is um, where they have an advantage that they can use to win some elections this year. Um, so I think uh, um, that is part of how the right is going to try to steer the conversation. And what we've been doing a lot of thinking and strategizing about is uh, how the right-wing conversation around China and more broadly uh, militarism is going to play out in this moment. Um, and uh, so uh, there's, there's already uh, some really close connections between the, the current debates around policing uh, with militarism. Right. So people are already talking about the militarized militarization of the police mm-hmm. as part of the problem with the police. Um, we've also seen, um, uh, Trump bring in the National Guard and the U.S. military to help suppress protests, for example, in, in D.C. Um, and, uh, both on the left and on the right, uh, people are making connections between calls to defund the police with calls to defund, um, the military. Um, and the military budget this year, um, I think, is likely to be um, the site of a really significant struggle um, and a really important and, and crucial one um, for uh, the progressive movement uh, as a whole. 
Um, uh, because we're seeing, we're seeing, uh, questions about the military getting raised, uh, in the midst of this uprising. Um, and, uh, uh, we've, we've, we've got these demands to defund, like reduce the military budget, uh, which, you know, this is a longstanding feature of, of the debate in, in Congress, um, every year around the military budget. But this year is going to be particularly intense because on the one hand, we have this intense economic crisis that's going to create pressure to make a lot of budget cuts. And so there's going to be a question of like, okay, so is the military budget going to get cut? Um, on the other hand, we have these anti-China hawks uh, in, in Congress uh, who are saying like, no, um, we need to increase the military budget even more specifically to counter um, the supposed threat of China. Mm-hmm. Um, and Senator Tom Cotton is one of the leading forces behind this. He's proposed this um, 40-some billion dollar uh, uh, military package, like on top of the existing military budget, uh, specifically to counter China. Mm-hmm. Uh, just today, uh, the one of the Senate committees he's on um, gave the green light to funding for a renewal of the nuclear arms race with both China and Russia. Um <laughs> which is, I, I don't know, like we're dealing with a death cult here. <laughs> um, uh, so, um, uh, and, then, and then to make things uh, even more complicated, the Chinese government uh, recently passed a, a new budget, um, which, you know, so China's also facing an economic crisis as a result of, of COVID-19. Uh, they made uh, major cuts to uh, lots of areas of spending, and the major exception was the military budget. So mm-hmm. the Chinese government has increased the military budget this year while making cuts to a lot of other areas. And this is just such a powerful argument for anti-China hawks in the U.S. Mm-hmm. because China is clearly prioritizing its military spending. So how can we not do the same? Um, so this is going to be, uh, well, I hope that we put up a good fight, and th- but this is going to be like a really ugly fight this year and um, um, it was already going to be one and now uh, the way that uh, conversations around the military are playing are starting to like crop up around um, uh, the Black Lives Matter uprising um, uh, yeah I anticipate all these forces like interacting in um, uh, unpredictable ways that could lead us either into like big new opportunities, um, but also potentially like greater disasters. Yeah. And Biden has shown some signs of trying to, if not out China hawk Trump, at least, you know, kind of play the same game rhetorically. Biden's got some campaign ads saying, you know, Trump rolled over for the Chinese and so on. And, and you can imagine, you can imagine the campaign dynamic amping, amping things up. You know, I also think it's just like, it just seems to be almost impossible to argue in American politics with success for just like reducing the military budget because, you know, going back to the Obama years, when, when, when the Obama people wanted to argue for a reduced troop commitment to the Middle East, they seemed to feel they had to phrase it as pivoting toward, toward Asia, right? That was the phrase. You remember that? Yeah. We're going to pivot to Asia. And I thought, well, why don't you just say we're going to pivot to America? So, I mean, I mean, do you have to, right? Do you have to make up for reduced military expense? You have to think of a way to uh, make up for reduced military expenditures by, by spending 
uh, military money somewhere else. But uh, so it's a uh, so I, I'm interested, to, though, to hear you say that you think anti-militarism might get uh, some energy out of the current ferment, because I haven't noticed that much of it myself. I mean, I've heard demilitarize the police, which mm-hmm. is one thing. But I, I haven't noticed that really translating into a broader – and one of my own frustrations with the progressive movement generally is the lack of emphasis on uh, foreign policy. Um, I've always – I've long hoped that there would be more energy spent there. I haven't noticed a lot of it this time around. Am I just missing it? Um, I, yeah, I don't think you're missing that much. It is a conversation, um, that is happening. I think more around the edges. It is, yeah, you're right. It is not a central part of, mm-hmm. um, of, uh, the, the message right now, um, in the uprising. And, uh, I think it is, you know, um, I'm an organizer with my own priorities, but it's, it would be foolishness to, for any, any of us to like try to impose our pre-existing agendas onto what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, on the streets right now, like the protest movement is going to, you know, it's going to involve, but it's got to, you know, we, we sort of have to follow the, like figure out how we align with what's happening uh, in the movement and not try to turn the movement as an mm-hmm. instrument of what, what we already wanted to do. Um, so um, I think uh, it's, it's unpredictable. Um, I'm not about to give directions to the, to the movement, like the, the thing that the rest of us have to do is like follow the black leadership in this moment. Um, but I think there is a potential for questions of militarism to gain greater prominence mm-hmm. um, uh, in the weeks and months uh, uh, to come. Um, and uh, like, I, th- I think um, uh, our role is to uh, make like to, to, develop alternatives and, and keep them alive and, um, uh, and available. And I also think, you know, like I mentioned before, I think, uh, the, the right is doing its part to, um, uh, turn the conversation, uh, towards questions of militarism and towards, um, uh, the U S China conflict, because it, it thinks that this is, it, 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 the right really thinks that this is a place where they have real strengths. And if they can turn the conversation more in that direction, then um, to them, that's going to feel like uh, bringing, bringing uh, the public discourse back onto their territory mm-hmm. um, and, and away from the current black lives matter territory, which is like, they're on the defensive there, right? They want to bring it back to a place where they think they can be on the offensive. And for them, they think that's um, the U S China conflict. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, one thing that I really worry about is, uh, Trump's really taking a beating politically. Like we can see this in the polls. I have this big concern that out of desperation, he's going to try and stage some kind of October surprise. And that could very well look like, um, some kind of military escalation. Mm. Um, thinking that that's going to be the thing that's going to rally the nation, uh, around him. Um, a big, a, a big sort of meme in elite circles of, of pundits has been the idea that um, conflict with China could be the thing, could be just the thing to unify our divided nation. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been uh, an idea expressed like across the political spectrum um, for a while now. Um, and Trump's definitely going to take that into consideration. Um, and it would be just the thing to, 
flip the public discourse um, away from racial justice, um, where he's on the defensive and onto this other issue, this U.S.-China conflict, where he thinks he's going to be uh, more, more, um, where he's going to be able to be like stronger. And um, uh, so, you know, maybe that won't happen. Maybe it will. But I think that's something um, that we need to get ready for. Yeah, before the pandemic, I would have singled out Iran as a more likely candidate mm-hmm. uh, for, for you know, kind of um, ginned up pre-electoral tensions. And I'm not saying he will, but I mean, if he were going to do it, I would I would have said Iran was a candidate. Yeah, but I now, think, after the pandemic, yeah. you, you can see how the politics are, are pointing to China, and he's helping them uh, point in that direction. Let me ask you one more uh, quick question that's kind of related to the current political moment. There's long been some tension on the left between what is sometimes called identity politics and a more kind of class-based analysis of policy problems, right? It's like, uh, I mean, to take Marx himself, it was, it was kind of a colorblind analysis. The working class is the working class, regardless of, of, uh, ethnicity. And, um, and, you know, uh, it seems to me the, uh, well, I'm not, I guess it seems to me that a lot of the things that are emanating from the current moment in the way of policy proposals and actual policies don't have a huge amount of kind of heft. I mean, some of them, uh, sound symbolic. They may be important, uh, like when you, um, you know, um, removing Gone with the Wind from the HBO archives. I mean, I do think these things can add up to something significant, but it's not the same as like taxing the hell out of affluent people and doing something with the money, you know, <laughs> like, and, and, and I, and I guess I wonder if, if one reason you're not hearing more about the latter is because traditionally those doing things with the money, um, are, those are more class-based policies. In other words, you do things for the public schools that would help low-income people generally, or or for uh, Medicaid that would help low-income people generally, regardless of ethnicity. And it seems to me, coming out of this moment, you're seeing more kind of you know ethnic-specific initiatives. You might say now, now. I guess police reform is a little different because presumably some of these reforms. Uh, would would not are not designed only to help uh, African Americans, um, and would and would kind of tend to to uh, help a variety of kinds of people. But do you, do you take my point that this you, you see what I mean, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I want to go back to your Marx reference because um, uh, I have a different take on sort of uh, Marx's understanding of the relationship between race and class. Um, okay. So he uh, in somewhere in Capital he says, uh, "How's the quote go?" Um, it's like, uh, labor cannot emancipate itself in the white skin while it is branded in the black or something like that. His point was that, um, within, within the U S, um, this is a reference to slavery, actually, that the existence of racialized slavery in the U S was a major obstacle to, um, the, uh, to working class movements, um, of any race, uh, in the U S. Um, and part of his anal- analysis was that, um, uh, some crucial working class struggles, uh, for example, over the length of the working day, um, were unable to move forward until the abolition of slavery. And so the abolition of slavery had to happen first. And then after that, you were able to get these, these working class struggles. Um, and I think this has been a recurring theme in U.S. history that struggles for racial justice and struggles for economic justice, uh, go hand in hand. And there's, there's sort of this, um, 
this like feedback loop between those two, those two, uh, what, what, what on the surface looks like two different kinds of struggles. Um, um, a more recent example would be, uh, one of the consequences of the civil rights movement was, um, uh, uh, an increase in struggles among public sector workers, um, which, you know, were disproportionately black, but it was a multiracial, um, mm-hmm. working class, uh, labor force. Um, so what on the face of it looks like a racial, like just a racial justice struggle, um, had huge, uh, consequences for working class power, um, in, in the U.S. So, um, I think given that history, um, we should be ready for similar parallels, um, in, in this moment. Um, um, and, uh, like, no one, like, it's foolish to make predictions or to try to impose some other agenda on what, what's, what's unfolding in, in the protest movement. But like, one thing we should think about is, um, how the, the economic aspect of this COVID-19 crisis is going to, um, start to play out in more and more intense ways. So, um, what we're looking at going into July and August is, uh, some of the, uh, relief packages running out, um, uh, we're going to see uh, sort of these eviction moratoriums running out. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we're going to see a lot of the hopes that reopening the economy is going to like just put everything back to normal. Like that's not going to pan out. Um, so we're going to see a lot of the, a lot of the um, uh, consequences of the enormous failures uh, from our, our political leaders to deal with the economic fallout of, of this crisis, like hit people across the country in a major way, um, black people are going to be especially, especially hard hit. And we got to think about like, what's going to happen if we are in August, like July or August, we're in the midst of a national uprising. And now they're trying to do mass evictions. Mm-hmm. Like, how is that going to play out? I think we're going to see these economic issues um, become more of a part of, of, of um, more, like more of a focus in the uprising. Um, and we're going to see like the, this racial justice lens and this economic justice lens, uh, like sort of come, come together. Yeah. Um, or at least I think there's a lot of, a lot of potential, uh, for that. Yeah. I, I guess that's what I mean is time kind of to put it crudely. Sometimes, uh, the way to help a lot of black people is to favor policies that are not explicitly about black people, but disproportionately help black people by virtue of just the democratic, the demographic that they um, affect broadly. And there's a lot of policies like that, um, a lot of economic policies like that. And, um, uh, and, and, and yeah, the, so I guess that's, uh, so, so you anticipate that happening. And, and I guess, I mean, I guess one question is, will there be explicit linkage uh, between the protest movement and those things. I mean, that, that seems to be an interesting question. Will some of the energy of the protest movement, uh, be channeled into those, uh, kinds of, uh, policy areas, which hasn't exactly happened yet, right? Yeah. Um, again, um, I, not, I, I not your be, job. Uh, yeah, I know. It, would be, it would be foolish <laughs> to make predictions. Um, but, uh, uh, I, I do think there is a tendency um, certainly within the context of U.S. politics, that um, approaching economic justice issues from the standpoint of, of racial justice can um, sort of capture the 
the popular imagination and, um, and sort of lead to greater progress rather than sort of mm-hmm. starting from a purely economic justice lens and saying like this will disproportionately benefit, um, black people or, or, or people of, of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and like these two things are closely tied together. Um, but, uh, because of the way that, um, really in the U S race is used as, is sort of like, um, a stand in for class. Like we have, well, this is shifting more recently, but you know, um, for a long time, we've had very little class consciousness in the U S but sort of race gets used in place of, of class consciousness. So like, um, struggles that are centered on questions of race can, um, uh, can also be a, a, a very powerful starting point for raising questions of, of class. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, I think I, you know, again, I'm not going to make predictions, but I, I think that is going to play out in some way, um, in this moment of uprising, um, how exactly, I think we can see some potential there, but okay. yeah, it's unclear. Okay. So, well, thanks for taking the time. So where can people find your stuff? I mean, uh, what's the URL for justice is global? First of all, is it, uh, justice is global.org. Okay. And, uh, and- we're, I'm also ahead. on Twitter and uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Toby Tech, T-O-B-I-T-A-C. Okay. And I am on Twitter at Robert Ryder, W-R-I-G-H-T-E-R. And let me actually also plug a couple of other things. Like, uh, I, I, I did this piece on Steve Bannon's, um, China obsession in, in my newsletter, the non-zero, uh, newsletter, which is That's at really nonzero.org. Yeah. Oh, thanks. And we, we can, um, we will link, um, uh, on the blogging has that TV site. So the video for this will appear one, it'll appear on blogging has TV, it'll appear on YouTube. Um, and then there's the audio, uh, feed on both the right show and blogging heads. Um, we'll put, uh, on, under links mentioned on the blogging head site, we'll link to that. And maybe also this wired piece where I did this long, um, uh, argument of, of why left wing global governance should be embraced by, uh, right-wing, uh, globalists, (laughs) but, um, uh, the, 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 um, but, but we'll put your, we'll put the URL to, um, uh, uh, to justice global there. Are there any other pieces you've written or anything? And and your Twitter handle will appear on that site too, but are there any other, um, uh, things you've, a piece of writing you've produced or anything or justice is global is produced or manifestos or anything you want us to link to? You, you can send them to me if they don't come to mind now, we'll put them up. Yeah. But. Um, I think, you know, there's this, uh, movement we need pamphlet that we wrote back in like 2015. Okay. Um, that includes a lot of our key ideas. Um, there's also, um, more recently, uh, uh, an article published by the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation that I co-authored with Jake Werner about the trade war. Okay. Um, uh, which, uh, um, I mean, the trade war is no longer like at the center of the conversation, but I think a lot of it is still relevant the analysis mm-hmm. and, and proposals. Um, and uh, let's see. Um, uh, oh, I mean, there's, there's an article I, uh, that got published in the nation that I wrote uh, recently on uh, the Tiananmen Square anniversary. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. I Sounds can, good. Send that stuff over to you. So yeah. we'll put that that stuff on the site at bloggingheads.tv. Um, okay. Well, well, thanks a lot, uh, Toby. This was a lot of fun. 
good luck. Yeah. Good yeah. luck with the cause. Okay. Thank you. See you.